that's to me still something that I wanted to do back then that I still want to do now, which is impact a whole lot of people with a really positive message that changes the world. Quite frankly, it's not a big ask if you, I mean, if you ask me, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth and Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter. Now, I think of acceptance as a tooth and nail artist a couple of decades in the making. They've just made and released their first album on tooth and nail, and it's called Wild Free, but it was right here in the Seattle-Tacoma area where acceptance was founded, and right at the time that tooth and nail was transitioning to the new sound and the explosion of the second generation of artists that they were having. Now, Acceptance, who were first-generation Tooth & Nail kids, became a flagship Seattle band and teamed up with Aaron Sprinkle, but instead of taking the indie path, they were one of the first bands to be scooped up by a major label right off the bat, and in a lot of ways, they were guinea pigs for that whole experiment. They created a landmark album called Phantoms that would be a legend of the scene, but the band would never truly find a groove before disbanding in 2006. But their music would continue to rise in popularity thereafter. And so I got the chance last week to hang out with Jason and Kaylin and Garrett and Ryan, and we had a great conversation that I'm sure you will get a lot out of, too. Here we go. Oh, yeah, miss you guys. Love to see you. Uh, that's a good intro. We should, we should just start. I just, I just rolled off the job site, Carter. You're going to have to deal. Well, I'm glad you're here, Kaylin, and everybody else, too. So let's just start in there. Um, I tell you what. Let's do this episode a little bit like a, a fairy tale. We'll tell your story um and and like it's a fairy tale and i'll start with once upon a time and since i know this story pretty well because i was there for a good bit of it so it goes something like this and i'll, I'll let you guys fill it in but once upon a time in the seattle tacoma area in the leftover period from grunge and the punk scene uh, arose a group of young fellas who would become known as acceptance and they would begin to participate in the local uh, music culture that was available to them at that time. And it's true, you guys were tooth and nail kids, right? What a good time. This is Jason, by the way, but what a, what a, I, mean, I miss those days, quite frankly, because mm -hmm. Ryan and Kaylin and Garrett and I were talking about how tooth and nail, first, in hindsight, one of the best labels at really getting, a making a community, getting people together, getting, a, a, you know, I, I, having something for them to, we looked forward to going to a concert and getting a um, sampler from Tooth & Nail or something like that. How'd you um, first find that culture? This is Kalen, by the way. Um, just, you know, kids at school, friends at school, finding out, you know, hearing bands like NoFX for the first time. Um, MXPX was huge for us uh, being around here and, um, I don't know, just kind of what Jay's talking about too, that kind of almost cult-like followings that labels get. It's like, you know, finding a band and then 
attaching to the band, but also attaching to the label and then wanting to know about everything else that, that they're involved with and stuff that they're putting out. So I think yeah. it, I mean, it's like once you find one band that you love, all of a sudden you had like 30 bands that you loved. Were all you guys into yeah. tooth and nail bands in high school? Uh, I mean, for me, it was Green Day that started out everything. And then it, and then MXPX kind of came right after and, you know, going to those concerts, then you would get more and more than it was. You went to a MXPX concert, you got a sampler and you started to recognize that there was Slick Shoes and Value Pack and all these other bands started to show up in the, w- with this music that would be handed out at the concert. I just remember seeing like MXPX at the Rock Candy and after the concert, there was a uh, Value Pack Goatee Hook sampler. On cassette. <laughs> yeah. But I don't, you know, I mean, I think that all came from going to, con- I, I mean, for me, it started with, with picking up a guitar and I only, I picked up a guitar because of Green Days. I, I bought their tab book at the uh, music shop and mm-hmm. uh, that's how I learned how to uh, form a bar chord and the bar chord opened up my whole world. And then I was just into that kind of music. And I know Ryan, I'd be interested to see what Ryan's perspective was. Cause he kind of, it was like, we'd kind of been playing already a little bit, but he, yeah. but I think Ryan came from a similar space. So I'd be interested to see what he, th- what his take is. You know, when I think, when I think about tooth and nail, um, I think about being growing up in a very conservative home and listening to trying to listen to music. Uh, you know, I remember, I remember specifically the day my mom found my bad religion CD under my bed right? Like I kind of had to hide it a little bit. And when I think of tooth and nail, I think of kind of my bargaining chip, right? Like to me, tooth and nail gave me kind of my own space growing up in a conservative home where I could listen to bands that sounded a lot like these other bands, but they, they, they had a message that was, you know, okay for, for what I was allowed to do. And so early on again as a kid as a teenager and i'm i'm a little bit younger than the rest of the guys but as a teenager kind of trying to figure out you know that whole that whole scene it was cool to have a label that supported my lifestyle at the time right like it gave me an intro it gave me kind of a way to tap into that um you know mxpx obviously was one of the biggest influences on on me personally growing up but you know just just being able to have a label that put out bands consistently that aligned with you know where i was mentally as a as a teenager growing up in a conservative home was super cool the way you say lifestyle there's actually it seems really important to me because that's more than just music and yeah. basically it seems like you hear and see MXPX and Green Day, and it's not just music that you hear. You somehow get the sense that you can participate in that lifestyle. Jason grabs a guitar. Right. You know what I mean? My MXPX is from here. It's it yeah. seems like I mean it's it's all of a sudden there is a well, lifestyle. Yeah. And you saw, you know, the other thing is is you the all these bands and these artists were all from here almost. I mean, and so you would be out at a concert and you would see you knew, oh, there's you know Jeff from Ninety Pound Wuss, or there's you know um, here are the people that form this scene and and in reality and in hindsight it really was a scene and there were some really great artists that would that you know i mean i think sometimes you think of 
back then for sure, being on tooth and nail, you know, would have been, I mean, we'll probably get into this, but being on tooth and nail, you know, is a stigma and, and, and for sure back then versus now where I don't know that labels have the same type of connotation or, you know, um, identity as they used to have. But when you really go back and, 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 and listen to the music and then we kind of, you know, we're able to interact with these people in passing, you know, and you could even bring Jeremy Enoch into that, into that um, space because he was, you know, when he started doing solo stuff, he was a, a part of that culture. Um, I mean, Jeremy Enoch, MXPX and 90 Pound Wuss would do a basement show at somebody's house mm-hmm. and you'd go to it and it'd be like, what the heck's going on right now? And I think, you know, yeah, I mean, Ryan's right from a lifestyle or from like a, for conservative kids or kids that grew up in a Christian home, a lot of this was, you know, was something where you might have your parents saying, hey, listen to that. You, you have to listen to a certain style of music. You know, I never, I wasn't necessarily, my parents were pretty cool about, I grew up in a, in a, in a conservative home, but my parents were always pretty, my dad was a musician. So I was listening to kind of whatever I wanted to listen to. It just ended up being that. Tim, what Matt, what you were saying, you know, MXPX was local. It, it felt, regardless, I think it just felt like part of something. To me, this is really interesting because you're sitting there right here on the ground level in Seattle in what I call the first generation of tooth and nail kids. You're consuming yeah. the culture of this emerging movement. Like you said, Jeff Betger and people that had Jeff from 90 Pound Woods and people had kind of built and were doing and uh, Jeremy Enoch and everything, Aaron Sprinkle and the things that are going on around here are very cool. Um, and it's they're starting to have some success. And then all of a sudden, the, you know, Green Day's on the radio and all this other stuff and it feels accessible. So you guys are the first generation of people to really respond to what the groundwork that had been laid and really come in and start to take advantage in the new in the se- second generation of of this scene and you have a long history with you know from that scene all the way to now putting stuff out on tooth and nail but your perspective on this um is a really really fascinating one and also it's exciting for me because i was in this exact scene when emory moved to uh seattle in 2001 in the fall you know, just got sorted out. And by 2002, we're getting our first shows and stuff like that. And we come into this local scene that's been built all that's this new generation of stuff that's happened in Seattle of all these people who've been inspired by the first generation. And there's really an exploding actual local music scene, which I'd never seen before. None of our people had. And we got out here to the West Coast and saw it. And in that local scene itself, the local band that was the kings of the scene was acceptance. And so from the very beginning of your career as being a popular local band, they can sell a lot of tickets at club impact uh, to now, you know, <laughs> I've, I've had a pretty good view of it. The very first time I got exposed to a music scene, it was, you know, with you guys and you guys were on top of it and had this whole journey. So I thought we could explore a whole bunch of that stuff tonight, but you have a very good vantage point to share the story of what the Seattle local scene really was, how it was important. Um, and, and, and then, you know, get to talk about the experiences that you guys had as a band. Um, but before we move even into the second chapters of the fairy tale and stuff like that, um, this is once upon a time, there was you guys, you know, the tooth and nail scene and culture that inspired you guys to, uh, go participate in it. But before we move to that, can you guys tell me as fans and from any time period, what are your favorite releases on tooth and nail records, songs or albums that are meaningful to you? And we'll, that that's kind of a fun way to get started too. Any time period. The moon is down. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. 
Well, even before that, dude, uh, homecoming Craig's brother was, was biblical for me for a long time, <laughs> dude. It was so good. <laughs> That's Kalen. Yeah, I love Lost at Sea, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me what is special about Craig's brother. Well, I mean, back when I, just, when I, when I started listening to Craig's brother, or, you know, when they came out, I, Legwagon was probably my favorite band, um, you know, from like, I don't know, like 97-ish around then or so. Um, and when I heard Craig's brother for the first time, I mean, they were like, you know, I hate to say it because they probably hate it too, but like they were kind of the tooth and nail version of, of, of the wagon. So I don't know. I just loved it. I loved, I loved their, their chord progressions. I loved the style that they did. I mean, the whole thing was just, it was cool. And it was really unique. I, I felt like for the label that they definitely stick out. And what's the best Craig Brothers song? Oh, I, dude, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you the name anymore. It's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, a couple of you said the moon is down. That one comes up a lot, but it's important. It's incredibly pivotal to this transition that we're talking about here at that time, because that had just come out and I don't know if that came out in 2001. Yeah, I think it did. Um, or 2000, but that really teed up the transition of the new sound of bands that was to come in. And I have a specific memory as the, one of the first shows we ever got, um, it was probably third or fourth show and it was a show at a church and it was with acceptance. And we're like, Oh, this is going to be so awesome. It was acceptance is playing. They're the best band. And I remember going in and and hearing and walking in there, we were loading in and Garrett was sitting over there playing the further seems forever on the guitar. That was, I forget the name of the, the song. That's the ballady one. Um, and, and Garrett was in there playing it, and it sounded so good. And I was like, oh my gosh, this band is going to be so good. And then they're like, but that's that's not even the guitar player. That's the drummer. Wait till you hear him play drums. And we're like, wow. <laughs> we just thought these guys are so, you know, that was kind of like, it was just so exciting and electric that there was other people that knew the same music and were good and getting good. And like, you know, you guys sounded as that local band at that time doing those kind of shows. You were really putting out a very professional um you know, quality of thing. It really was heads and tails above a lot of other stuff there. Um, and I remember that. I was just thinking, oh, well, they're into Further Seems Forever, and there you go. Look how good. And it was really right in that spirit of what they were doing, and you were just right behind them the way we saw it. You're touching on the Further and me playing that song. So I had learned that song from Rory from the Militia Group when our van broke down, and we stayed with them in Huntington Beach. So I very much remember learning that. I was like, wow, that's just fun. I mean, that, that just to remember the whole thing is pretty fun. So yeah. I hope it's, uh, there's a lot to recall from there. I think that's some of the, it's interesting, you know, it's such a, it was such an interesting, it was tight knit, but it, it was, it's it just, I mean, even us, when you think about, I mean, you saying that, you know, we were not within that culture, you know, so we, if you would say what we grew up with in Seattle being, the MXPX, you know, we didn't play a concert with MXPX until we got back together in like 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I still played remember with Arthur a couple times. I, yeah, right. No, right. Mm-hmm. I, I still remember playing at the Showbox, and Tom is in the crowd. This is in now 2016. And I'm still thinking to myself, Tom from MXPX is watching us play a concert right now. And I mean, this is 
in 2016 after, you know, I mean, way after the fact and Ryan, and I, I still think it's wild that he even that like, he likes our band, right. For instance, even today. And back then we would, I would have given anything to play a concert with MXPX mm-hmm. this period at the rock candy or the whatever. And like, but we weren't in that group and, you know, we kind of, you were just young kids coming up that weren't in that yet. Right. Yeah. Before that. We ended up, you know, we, we played a lot at the paradox. So we kind of became close with Jeff a little bit because he was running that. And that was like kind of a big deal, but we never played with those guys. Quite frankly, we connected with the secular hardcore scene way quicker or way easier or whatever, what more, I don't know how to explain it. Um, I, and, and the secular kind of new school hardcore scene, you know, a lot of kids came up from the similar culture, you know, because I think tooth and nail in solid state did a really good job of, of finding bands that were on the front end, front end of that style of music. So they, they really created um, a lot of that, I, I guess, that evolution when it comes to hardcore, melodic hardcore, um, you know, and so a lot of these bands, I think, came out of there. But we, you know, we played Hellfest. We never played Tomfest, but we played Hellfest. It's like, it was just a weird way. We just kind of ended up gravity. you know, our, our path was just interesting. Um, well, we had we had friends that played in those like with, we were friends with Champion and and those bands and stuff. So yeah. we ended up kind of glomming on to shows like that every once in a while. So and I think there the was way- a lot of bands back then that blurred those lines too. Like like bands like Saves the Day and stuff came from they would go like you know they would go out with like straight edge hardcore bands and stuff and yeah. but they totally didn't. It, it, it when you look back at it now it didn't even really seem like it fit but it totally did. And I think we kind of blurred the line there for a little bit with that. Yeah. Um, so it seems to me when I got here and first saw a local music scene, which I'd never seen before, I had I couldn't understand how it was so diverse, the styles of music and who would play together and what the, even half of this music was. But they were all playing together, and the, the scene was just every type of band possible. But most yeah. of them didn't have that uh, hardcore edge exactly to it so that was kind of emerging was that the fact that hardcore was getting up into melodic music that way i think that was part of it it was just happening yeah it was definitely a part of i think it was one of the unique things you know from a scene perspective of of our band was our ability to fit in that space even more so than we weren't ever a a a band with a lot of edge you know in just in general, and you, I mean, you, you mentioned it earlier, Matt, we were probably more from a, a, a live show perspective. We were probably more interested in putting, you know, having music sound really good first mm-hmm. and foremost and having songs to be as good as, I mean, at our, in, you know, at our age and in our progression stage, ha- writing the best songs we could and all that different stuff. It, and so that became our focus we definitely, Caitlin's right. We gravitated to this concept and I, you know, saves the day, you know, the through being cool record and that whole scene with Thursday and some of those bands, we kind of had similar relationships over on the, on, you know, in Seattle area. And that's what we did. We started playing with uh, bands like champion where we would play. And this is a little bit, you know, timeline wise, this is now a few years after, tooth and nail had kind of established that culture it became this new culture in seattle the indie scene and i'd say you know 
Tooth and Nail kind of slowed down and all of a sudden bands like the Blood Brothers and, and the Champion and some other, and they're all different sty- styles, but this post-hardcore kind of vibe came into the Seattle area and it worked for us because I never, there I was never ever thought of us as no like pun intended. Kings, and I always remember we would of talk, especially because we were friends sty- with that band. Progression no of, where a lot of kids came from, which I think is, in their you had a lot of kids, just, especially, I don't think we ever, especially kids coming from like Christian homes in Southern California, yeah, listening think, to, I don't think we Fat Records bands and that style of music. You had a lot of kids listening to, um, say, Sunday yeah. Real Estate, in my opinion, and and there was this kind of blending of like Fat Records, e- you know, what whatever you would call emo, which I would, it, for me, it's Sunday Day Real Estate. That's my version of emo when I think of you know what what i where i got that from and then i think that's where a band like jimmy world comes from you know where it's like they came from the phoenix area and that that you could just we could hear like in our in our writing kaylin would always come from this perspective and even garrett a little bit where the fat records kind of more pop upbeat punk rock feel was coming into the songwriting but fat records bands wrote a lot of dissident music you know melodic dissident guitar you know riffs and we took that with and combined it with this fact that we really enjoyed listening to sunny sunny real estate we really we liked the foo fighters color and the shape record which kind of had some of that same combination um and so i think that's what worked for us at oh, some yeah. level i think oh, that's yeah. what still connects with phantoms for instance for people it was a kind of a it kind of fit in a unique pocket where it had this melodic feel it kind of did touch on some of the harder elements at times. Um, and it was always super, you know, we were always real passionate or honest about what we were trying to do. Um, and I think people like, I think that worked for whatever reason with our fans. I think it worked within, I think we got respect from artists. Like you, you just said that said, Hey, I could tell this band cared about being, you know, a good sounding band. And that's, and that means something. Um, you know, back then for sure, it meant, it meant something, but we were still, in my opinion, we were always, you know, too soft to be part of that group and too hard to be part of like popular culture. And we weren't really ever, I never felt like we were really settled in any type of spot, you know, for good, better, you know, for good or bad. I don't know, but. Agree very much. So that takes us into our second, we've covered largely the second part of the fairy tale and every day they would play in this scene the next things where the conflict comes in or the point of change in the fairy tale and says until one day national attention and big stuff started to happen to this one band acceptance in our local scene and i'm really curious from your point of view did from from my point of view it was like wow they're already big and dominant did you feel popular and successful as a local band and then do you remember you were the first band in this era where bands were like getting signed and making money and making deals and getting lawyers and things were starting to happen. And you guys were like the first that were kind of pulled into that. And everybody was looking to see, how does this go? How do bands get signed? What do they do? What happens when you're whatever? Are they going to sign to tooth and nail? There's, I heard rumors about money. Like, do you remember that time? And did it feel like you were, uh, really on top of the world there? Like being the, just a regular <laughs> band, local band to that conversation happening. And what I remember to be a pretty short amount of time. I don't necessarily think we felt like we were on top of the world. I mean, 
We did you a, think we you were a, like the biggest Seattle Tacoma local band? Did you think that? Did no, you did, no. did you know you no. draw the most at, at Club Impact, right? I mean, you're the ones that draw there by Justin Get On, and you actually get paid money and sell merch. I mean, that you knew you were. I mean, you could feel that, right? You didn't feel like I mean, an we, underdog. You were the kings. No, I mean, I, I think we felt. I think we felt like we had gotten to a point where you know, I, I, I mean, I guess, but I, I mean, it, when you're talking about like the Seattle scene, that's like, I don't know how big that goes. Like in our little bubble, like I would, at that time, we probably pictured the scene as any band that we had direct contact with or that we knew. So mm. for us, I mean, may, yeah, maybe we were, we could draw the most, sell the most tickets at club impact or, you know, whatever that means. But um, it's, it meant everything at the time though, is the thing in the world that we lived in you know, that it, meant it, everything. It did. It did to the, to the record labels. That's for sure. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think from, I think internally two things, I can remember two things. One is I never felt like, we took any of that for granted or really understood that. I think every, we were a combination of, I think every concert we were in, and it still happens. Are people actually going to come watch us? Like, I think we were always wondering if people are going to come watch the, the show. And I also think that we always really cared about just putting on a good show. So it was never like, I don't think we ever walked away. We might walk away from a show and be like, wow, guys, that was pretty cool. You know, 600 people showed up to that show but it would be followed with Kaylin or somebody saying like, yeah, but you think they're all there to see us? I mean, they're probably there to see like <laughs> yeah. Emory or something, you know, like that's what was fun be, about it. Partly the shows were really fun and open like they, that. Like it they was, were. And, and you never really, we just, you know, we definitely wanted, we didn't to want to play last. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, we definitely you wanted should to play last. You guys yeah. should play last. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, we never wanted to play last. We're like, <laughs> why would we play last? We're still trying to like get, have people hear about us. Like we just never, felt like i think it was just always about how do we do a better job you know putting on a better show for people and when is the next show and we practiced i mean we were five days a week we practiced at garrett's basement and we drove an hour and a half to two hours each way i did for sure five days a week and it was a legitimate work Mm -hmm. session and you know and, and and when it needed to be creative we would write songs but i mean when we had our songs and we knew what we were doing it was to get good at, you know, our crap at our, at, as a band. Um, mm-hmm. I and, never, so, I never ever thought of us as like the Kings. And I always remember we would talk, especially because we were friends with that band noise ratchet. Uh huh. Exactly. There you go. 900 people in their hometown. And I just, I don't think we ever imagined ourselves Kings. We probably would have laughed at that idea. I just don't think. I mean, but no. it was you were the if they were you were hearing about the rumors of noise ratchet this and that in San Diego or something. But that you yeah. were the ones people were hearing rumors about in Seattle from other places at the time. That would have been you, you know. Wow. And to I mean to be specific, for, even from our view, it was wow acceptance, Gatsby's American Dream, and Time to Fly. It's just if you can just get be you couldn't. And there's not better bands. There's not better bands today, and uh, hasn't been since. I mean, incredible bands. So it turns out just being as good as one of those bands as those bands is good enough you know so that was kind of the benchmark and it was good enough and that's and so you had this thing that was unprecedented in this just whatever christian scene now that has happened for the first time and i know it's happened nationally like you said with noise ratchet but you're supposed to have these shitty demos 
and try to play as best you can and send them to everybody to maybe somebody, something could happen someday. But and you're not sending demos. You're being courted and pursued by all of the indie labels and then major labels as that local Seattle band playing those shows. We, well, we sent, no, we, de- we definitely sent out press kits, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, of eight, course with, you did. With, but you had, a, you had multiple labels pursuing you in your scene at some point, though. It, you know, the, it, we, it's, we, we made that Black Lines, the Battlefields EP on our own before it ever got released uh, and before we ever got signed by anybody. And with Sprinkle, too. Yeah, and that was with Aaron. And that was, uh, I, I think that was a, uh, I think that's an example of what our mindset was, which is like, hey, we're going to make our own product a quality record. We're going to make it with Aaron Sprinkle. You know, he made some really great records. He's a great artist. He's local. He's somebody that we can connect with. And it was always like it, everything was very purposeful that we that we did. And it felt like it had grounded, you know, thought process or, or whatever you want to say. It, it, it wasn't like, hey, we're going to get signed because, you know, bands are getting signed. Why not us? You know, why are they getting signed? It was like, hey, we're going to go make a record then and we'll sell it at, the, at our at our concerts so that people can pass it on to other people. And we probably need to do this anyway if we ever have any hope of more people hearing about us uh, and ever getting signed. I mean, we wanted to get signed to, to Tooth and Nail. I mean, at some point, Tooth and Nail is like, we want to sign you. And we just said, hey, great. If you'll buy us a van, we will sign. And we were having lunch with them. And they're like, and Brandon's like, yeah, mm. You know, guys, I don't think so. You know, whatever he said. It was, it was, it was <laughs> Tell me more about that. Van. Or pay exactly. off our van. I think $2,000 and pay off the van. It was like eight grand. Yeah. But I think we, Jay, I think you kind of glazed over probably something that's really important for this as far as why we made that, why we actually made the EP, because that EP didn't, we, Tooth and Nail wanted to sign the band before we even recorded those songs. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then, and then, and then what happened, you know, Tooth and Nail was always something that, you know, we would have loved to have entertained and, and would have been excited to do. And um, we actually had a pretty decent relationship there. Um, I used to work in mail order there, actually, like probably in 2000, like ni- 99, 2000. Um, so they were isn't always... That, isn't always, that how you found out about Saves the Day? Or what band was that that you got a demo for? That we fell in love with oh no oh the first thrice record they they brought they dropped off um i remember working in the mail room and they came thrice came through before they were thrice and, <laughs> and dropped off thrice and, and and dropped off um what that ident- i think it's called identity crisis but it was just yeah. like a cdr it wasn't even like legit and um Anyways, yeah, that's a whole that's a whole other story. But and they're like, I took, "Hey, we're not going to sign them." And Caitlin's no, like, Bill, Bill, we, me and me and Derek listened to it. And we're like, "Oh my gosh, this band rips!" And then we took it up to Bill, and Bill was like, "You know how many bands we got right now?" And we were like, "That was it." <laughs> <laughs> so that's the stories of time that Billy Power passed on thrice. Passed on thrice, totally, <laughs> totally. Um, but so, anyways, we we had a decent relationship with Tooth Nail, so they were they they were aware of the band. I mean, I, even if they weren't aware of us, as far as whatever we were doing, um, you know, within the scene that at the time I would have made them aware, like, Hey, check this out, check, you know, slide it across the table. But, um, 
but to, so to you know to kind of further go into what Jay was saying is it, they got to the point where they you know they Brandon really liked the band and and um you know wanted to offer us a deal and we went to we did go to lunch with him and uh, probably Bill and Jim Worthen yeah. I think I think Jim was there and we were like okay we want to sign we we're we're good to go we just need you to pay off our van and 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 we're solid and it was like eight grand and 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 Jay did a good excuse he's like. You know, kind of, yeah. yeah. And so from that, <laughs> from that point, we took our contract. We, the Christian was really good friends with some of the guys in that band, Vendetta Red. Mm-hmm. And they had just signed that huge deal. That That's right. Did. That's right. So, I'm glad you reminded me of that. It was like, Vendetta Red got a million dollars or something like that. It was like, totally. they got some fancy lawyer. They're It's going on. The bands are going to get pulled out of the woodwork and get a million dollars now. That might happen. You know. So when yeah. Christian when Christian told the Vendetta Red guys about our meeting with Tooth and Nail, they were like, well, shoot, why don't you guys, why don't, why don't you guys talk to our lawyer, lawyer who was Michael Barber? Mm-hmm, and that's right. uh, Barber came out and watched us play a show and talked to us afterwards. He was like, I loved you guys. This was great. He's like, he's like, you know, you could go the Tooth and Nail route, but why don't you record, you know, four to six really good sounding songs for me and let me shop you and do the same thing I did with Vendetta Red. And we were like, okay. And that, so that's where, that, yeah, and then, yeah. then that, that's why we recorded Black Lines. It was always just intended to be a tool, you know, to, to see what other options we a could have. Sick demo. But a that, sick I mean, demo. that's, that's not been done demo, before, bro. though. That, that's groundbreaking in the sense that, first of all, most bands in your lineage have very shitty recordings doing the best they can on their real releases. So here you are making a very (laughs) high-level professional recording that you are paying for to leverage a deal with a fancy lawyer. Like, that's new. That's new. We got got money from Jason's grandma. Yeah, Uh, she did help us. We paid her back, but she Mm -hmm. did. And and then Sprinkle sprinkled his magic on on Mm -hmm. top of us, the fairy dust. So, I mean... it was it. Yeah, yeah we got to think. We got to think. Mike Herrera. We actually did. I think use Mike Herrera's uh, bass preamp. Uh, his preamp. And we used the board from the Skywalker Ranch. So it was a little <laughs> bit of Yoda on that EP too. Yeah. I want to hear more about Brandon. What he, uh, what do you think that was uh, when he's hemming and hawing about the paying off the van? <laughs> well, I don't. I mean, he, he okay. wasn't happy with. I mean, we recorded Phantoms at you know at the compound and stayed in his place there. And I I still remember him coming by, and that he's had that look. Oh, guys, hi guy. Oh, making your major label record now. Okay, mm-hmm. you know. I but you knew he was like, in hindsight. He, I think he was a little bummed. I mean, I, I remember doing the podcast with Bill, and you know, Bill, 
was not a big fan of my me at all uh, vocally that, that is and i you know he had made we'd done some demos before black lines and i, I don't know if he told the, somebody in the band somehow we found out that bill's like thought that was like the worst like sounding singer ever and um i just remember doing the podcast with him yeah killing billy tonight i love it <laughs> and you know one of the first thing bill says in the podcast he's like yeah so remember that time when i said that you weren't a good singer and like he's like and now i'm like obviously an idiot but i don't you know i'm like hey i don't know i didn't sound very i would probably tell him the same thing back then i was took a while to get okay you know but um you know one thing we don't that i think gets missed that i have never brought up this would be the first time i even mentioned it as something i think was was probably as important to anything we ever did is you know mike thrasher was a promoter in portland and he started doing shows in Seattle before Mike Thrasher was doing shows. It was, um, I can't Infinite. remember. It was infinite productions. And so all the bands that toured through came through, you know, and infinite productions did it. And, and we couldn't get a show as an opener on any national tours. And we started, you know, the club impact thing for sure. So, and then we started getting into the paradox and we started getting into some of these fringe venues, if you will. And we were drawing any, you know, 500 to 700 people, well, probably more like 500 people. And then all of a sudden Mike Thrasher started doing shows here and there at Graceland. Uh, I think Graceland now it's called uh, El Corazon, but at the time it was called Graceland. And he got us, you know, I don't, I think we sent him a demo again. The you know, same kind of concept is we just called him and he put us on a show. And then he, and it went well. And then he continued to put us on shows and we were playing with Coheed and Cambria. We, you know, we played uh, with further teams forever. We, we ended up playing some really good, you know, touring shows mm-hmm. as the opener. That's right. Yeah. You would get the opening spot when all the touring acts would come through. Yeah. And yeah. Then, yeah. then it was a secondary spot. And then all of a sudden I still remember the first time we did Graceland and you know, we sold Graceland out and it was oversold. You couldn't even, it was like, you couldn't even move. And it was one, still one of my, my greatest memories of, I mean, ever period. And I think a lot of that has to be, I mean, Mike Thrasher, I mean, not a lot of those types of promoters would be putting a band like us on a ticket, quite frankly, Uh, you know, infinite wouldn't. No, I mean, coming, especially coming from what was a Christian culture. I mean, at the time, or, or a scene, or at least, yes, know, we were, we were, that's seen right. As a, you know, we never, that was never really our, we never identified ourselves as a Christian band. And we never, that was really not the music world that we, that we gravitated toward, gravitated towards and, and whatnot. But it was for sure that was the thought, you know, in, in the industry mm-hmm. in Seattle. For yeah, sure. because you, there was a big distinction between that Tacoma, Portland, everything else, and Seattle proper, it, and we weren't really supposed to be there. Our kind of music wasn't really supposed to be on the national touring shows as the opener, or even that. And you guys broke; you were finally able to do that, and then then you get your own show there, and it's five hundred people at the premier venue. To which at which point you think, well, that's great; we can sell five hundred tickets for real, I guess. But the major labels and Brandon and these other people at this point start to, they start to understand and know, no, there's 500 people everywhere that will see you. And that's when the deals start coming and Michael Barber gets involved and, and, and I guess that kind of thing. So 
be, so the third part of the fairy tale goes then you got the national attention you you get all the big shows you are the it thing in this scene that is blowing up for the first time and being a real opportunity and because of that uh, you guys don't sign the tooth and nail and what was the decision making how did you get your deal the major label deal well I don't after that initial conversation with tooth and nail when when Brandon didn't like the van conversation I don't think we ever had a follow-up, like an actual sit-down follow-up after that point. Um, Cause I think we, we did what we did, what Barbara wanted us to do. We went and recorded um, and he immediately, you know, started shopping it. And I, I swear it was like, I don't know, like a week after he started sending stuff out, we were playing for Rick Rubin and Matt Pinfield. Wow. It, it, I don't Tell know. me that story. Like, I don't even know that part of it. I mean, it was I the most, I mean, if you want to picture the most unreal time of, of totally. any, as a musician, you could not write a more, to take your words, fairy tale. I mean, this, there was about a two month period where we never left LA or New York because we were just flying from city <laughs> to city playing multiple times for people that showcases you, and stuff. Some of these people were some of the most influential people you will ever have met. And it was unbelievable. But all that, oh. I mean, I mean Garrett, what was your or, or Ryan. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you. So I had asked my mom for permission to go on <laughs> tour. Right. So I, I officially joined acceptance three days before I graduated high school. What was supposed to be no more than a, you know, a week or two tour had turned into this crazy thing, right? Like we get down there and as a kid coming from Kitsap County, uh, you know, not ever having done big stuff or toured or anything like that, it was wild, right? Like I didn't know when I was coming home. I didn't know what was up from down. We just had gotten into this place where we were flying. I remember we were flying back and forth between LA and New York <laughs> so many times, right? Like it was wild, right? Like, and I was just going through this whole thing. Like, when can I go home? Right? Like, I didn't know what I was signing up for. Like it was, it was almost too much because as a kid, like this, if you play a guitar and you want to be in a band, like you just, that's, that's what you're going after. This is the dream. And then when you actually like the rubber meeting the road, it's a whole different ball game, right? Like that schedule was grueling. And I remember, I remember having to like have some hard conversations with myself. Like, <laughs> what are we doing? Like, this is crazy. This is crazy. Going from yeah. <laughs> being this kid in a small town, playing the guitar in a hardcore band joining an acceptance and then all of a sudden rivers cuomo shows up to a show that you're playing and you're literally like what in the fuck like this is a literal what in the fuck am i doing right it was it was crazy <laughs> what uh, i mean what were these environments you were playing for them they were showcases and stuff well that show was uh rick rubin wanted to see us play in front of an audience so he got us on the room instead of a couch show. yeah he got us on the show with Rooney at the Roxy in LA. And at the wow. time, I don't know if you remember Rooney, but they mm -hmm. kind of were, were in that Phantom Planet kind of circle. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of, they're a cool band actually. And yeah, so we were are. like 
freaking yeah. out. And then Rick, Rick's there and Rivers Cuomo's there and they're in a booth and we go see him after the concert. And it was, it was really, <laughs> actually, it's kind of weird, quite frankly, that, that was the weirdest <laughs> thing of all. But Hey Ryan, what about the Hudson though, in New York, which we got to go and stay at two different times with the green, the, the escalator that was green up to the, um, yeah. we'd be like to the point where like, well, we're I've never seen Hudson, anything like that in my going, life. Yeah, no, I didn't know what the Hudson was. Like we stayed there that like kind of, times. yeah, dude, that established my expectation for any <laughs> any place I stay Afterwards. further on, right? Like I was, and 19, this is all before you had a record out or did a tour, basically. Dog, I, I this was I, this was I, a week after just, the demo. <laughs> I had just been able to vote. Like I didn't like the like the Hudson. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, it was. It was. So at that point, you have to, I mean, you think you already feel, but you haven't even put out a record yet, but does it feel like you've made it or success is imminent? Do you think, well, I'm going to be as big as Rivers Cuomo? How could you have processed that transition from not being able to, I mean, you literally months before weren't really accepted to even really play the real club in Seattle. Yeah, no, I I still don't think that we ever, it was never about feeling like we had made it. I, I think we felt you know, we were more excited at that point about how much we could ring up the dinner bill and just like laugh about it afterwards and like, <laughs> be like, you know, like it was more, it was still more about like, I mean, I, you know, we, we, we showcased at a place called the swing house in LA and it was owned by a guy named Phil and yeah. he was the coolest guy. And we were like, that was the kind of stuff that was still exciting to us. Like, Oh, is Phil going to be the guy that does our, our, um, you know, our showcase, was he going to do sound for us at the showcase? Cause we got, we won't sound good unless Phil does it. And then, you know, I still remember yeah. our last showcase, Phil brings us like, a, a, maybe it was our last show or something. There was a show after I don't, Phil brings cupcakes to the show at the Troubadour or wherever. And yeah. this is a guy that owns the swing house. He's got one that one day he's like, Oh yeah. Um, Jane's addictions practicing today or who red hot chili peppers or whatever it was. Remember uh, one day they had like a huge artist, yeah james james addictions was there yeah james addiction and he's like you know but but i'm doing your guys a sound today don't worry you know like like that was like still what was really cool to us is those relationships and 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 yeah we wanted to sign but we i think we believed that we were I, i thought i think we believed that that was something that was that was right for us like we were we worked hard and we had we believed in our music and we felt like at the time we felt like being on a major label was the best chance for uh, for us to have a a voice that was going to impact the world at a huge huge level, you know, U2 level type. You know, but I mean, you you was, you could see that you had the ambition to impact the world like U2. That was the way that that was always the way we I think I mean I know I'd hope that would be the case. Um mm-hmm. the and in and culturally or philosophically that's what was going to happen. That was the way that we could, that, and, and it was just a mindset. And it wasn't, once again, it never felt like, let's get rich. It never felt like we've made it. It just felt like this is the, this is the, I mean, people need to hear this, you know, and this is something that is important. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was validated to me, Rick Rubin, to me, validated a lot of that in the process. That whole process with Rick Rubin, he took, brought us to his home. He, you know, he played us the Dude. Weezer demos. <laughs> wow. Um, he, he got us, a, he signed a book for us, The Spiritual Journey of U2, and he got it for the band. 
Um, and, and he was considering signing us and producing our record, by the way, that Golly. was a legitimate concept that he would potentially, they ended up, I think signing noise ratchet at some point. That's right. Never he did really, work with noise never, ratchet. That's correct. Never really doing anything, but they were what they were looking at noise ratchet and acceptance at the same time. And I think the concept was yeah. we would sign noise ratchet because they actually had a, a bigger following in their area at the time. Or we would sign acceptance because Rick wanted to work with this band. Like it was kind of like, I mean, and yeah, we had like a following, but not, not like noise, noise ratchet was, was drawing, you know, 900 to a thousand people. It was a big draw in San Diego. Um, you know, and we were at, you know, we were in Seattle drawing maybe five to 700 people at the time, which actually ended up being a big deal because Seattle was, was harder to, was hard to, to, to that draw. Is, that's in. like, tw- that's like 1200 in San Diego. Yeah. Seattle's then. typically <laughs> harder to draw in than the other major markets statistically. So it was, especially our style of music, you know? And so it was just interesting and, and, but working with Rick Rubin was great. But my, my, the point is this is on one end, we're like, okay, so Columbia records wants us to come back to New York after we just played here in LA for, you know, Atlantic. And are we going to be staying at the Hudson again? You know, it's like, they, like, that's like, that was like the thing we wanted to ask. Like for, it's, for, it's, for, it's you know, literally the best bed we, on the planet. That, we we're like, that's a cool place. You know, we were kind of, we were almost Jay, over the. Jay, let me ask you, did you, I mean, I think we've always been tempered, right? We've always yeah. been tempered. We, we've had our ambitions and our vision of where we should be may not necessarily match up at the same time, simultaneously with where we're going to get, right? Yeah. And I think this is something that the band has struggled with since yeah. day one, right? Like we, we yeah. genuinely believe we write great songs that have a passion and a purpose and we're going for something. But when I think, when I think back on those days of those weird, crazy flights, staying a month in New York and then flying back to LA and then being there for a bit, I mean, it all felt surreal to the point where did we buy into it? Right. Did we really think we were those guys? Right. Did we really think that we were that band? And I want to ask you, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about for a while. Like, do we feel like we should have been there? You know what I mean? Like did at any point, did it feel like this was something that we should have had or should have done? Because if you're asking me, I don't, I don't feel like I, it was all so surreal, right? Like at some point, somebody's going to pop the bubble and we're all going to be back in Seattle playing club impact. Like, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. I I think, I mean, there was a couple of things going on. I think, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, we were fortunate enough, to be grounded by, you know, the foundation of the band, uh, all that Kaylin Cloyd. So the reality is, as I, I, you know, I might true. be like, I might be like, hey, there's a guy in a real nice camper that wants to sign our band and put it on, you know, radio. And Kaylin would be uh, like, answer it. You know, I'm, I'm going to go full presidential on you. Answer it truthfully right now. I, I no, I mean, I think I still remember during those times we're talking about going to the Hudson, and Kaylin's like, okay, but are we going to have I need what amp do I have at the at the showcase? Uh, where are we getting it? Is it going to no, be? An we orange? were playing. You know, we're, is listen, it going to be? We played in front of Rick Rubin, and what was this? this is, like I'm just saying, when you're in a room with Rick Rubin on a couch, and that's it. I want to know that the amp I'm using sounds good. 
And then, yeah, but Kalen, Kalen, and my then the question next, is. Then followed up with Matt Pinfield, who's freaking out about our band. I'm like, where are, what? My question what is though, Kalen, is do you believe that you should have been there, right? I think, I think so. I think, I don't think, yeah. uh, when you, I was there, when I you know. look at, I think from the perspective of, did it, do, do, do I feel like there was a band that outworked us? No. You know, do yeah. I, do I feel like there was a band that was more passionate about, about connecting musically with people? I don't think so. You know, I think yep. those were all real things. I, you know, in hindsight, you know, my biggest regret, I don't think that I personally did it, did a good job of connecting with people, you know, at the way I think I, we could have, and the way I think we did after we got back together, you know, and, and now including you guys, quite frankly, that's that to me, I had enough, I had all the passion for all the things other than, than maybe what should have been happening right there at the ground floor. Um, and that was tempered by a lot of things. One, you know, wanting to put on such a good concert and not wanting to talk because I don't want to lose my voice. And I, I was, I was, I was chronically sick on the road, which is a real thing. Um, and, you know, and then, but, but anyway, it's just like, I think we always felt that, I think, I don't think we ever felt that we, we didn't deserve something based off purely off the merits of how hard we worked and how much we cared about what we were doing. And from yeah. a musical perspective, to me, those are some really big parts of, we may not have had the talent of everybody else. We may not have had, you know, the premier song, you know, obviously we needed a first single or, and we'd probably be still, still, you know, making music apparently. So, you know, from, from that perspective. We still are making music, Jay. Well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> as the only thing we do in life, I guess, or something, uh, you know, but um, yeah, I, I do. I, I definitely, and I, I think it, and it, I think the, the thing about phantoms that, that is the coolest part of all of it is I look at that record as a culmination of all of that. And I think it was validated. It might've took us, we didn't realize yeah. it was validated ever. We never, yeah. I'm telling you, I mean, Matt, you, you telling you as well, we, had the band never gotten back together 10 years after breaking up, I would have had zero idea that record ever resonated with anybody, period. Mm -hmm. Well, I had, yeah, that's, I, I find that to be a fascinating part of the story. So the cause and effect of it is now that you have t taken this path, which is different than a lot of the bands in the scene would go, you've signed this major label, Matt Penfield's your A&R, and now you have tons of promotion push opportunity how did that go i know the tours you guys got starting at that time when you finally got on the road were just insane and it was partly because the scene was blowing up but the tours were just out of control yeah i mean we we um well the first thing we had to do is convince them to let aaron do the record and yeah to get for sprinkle you know, to do the record that we, was a battle yeah and we we did our demos with lou giordano who made rising tide by sanity real estate and had also done the atari's record on Columbia Records. So Columbia felt good about Lou Giordano because of his track record. The Atari's had just done half a million records or something like that. And, you know, they wanted him to do our record. Um, so he came to Seattle and he demoed the songs with us. And, you know, we were adamant to use Aaron. And 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 that I think that brought back <laughs> that brings us back to some of that grounded, some of that, you know, where I say I never necessarily felt like we made it or we felt that way because we, we could have used that. I mean, the record deal we had was a, it was a big money record deal. What can we you tell use, me in, in the money department? Uh, 600,000. 
Okay. Appreciate that. You know, 650? I thought it was like 750 with all the tour, approved tours. It was a wow. weird. Six, anyway. 650. It was in that, that range, which included the album budget, obviously. And the way we got Columbia to okay air. And that was, oh, I'm sorry, but that is a, is a you know, is something like t- 10 times, no, it's like 100 times more than, <laughs> it's an order of magnitude bigger than what Tooth and Nail bands were getting. I mean, we just, we got eight grand uh, yeah. t- to pay it back our, that we spent on the record when we signed we the same a few months later. To, <laughs> you you know, $8,000 what we got. Our accounts, though. No, I yeah, know, I know, you know, but I'm just saying the yeah, scope of yeah. your deal to Jason's point yeah. was uh, something totally yeah. off the charts new and awesome. Yeah, we, 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 I mean, to that, and, and side note to, to Kalen's point, you don't get that money, but right. anyway, uh, the, Thousand. but what, the way we convinced them to get Aaron was we said we would make the record for $80,000 and we would let them use the rest of the money for tour support and promotion of the record or whatever. And I think at that point they were like, this band is so adamant. You know, by this time we had also signed a management company. And the management company at the time was representing Fall Out Boy. Panic yeah, it was the biggest Festival. one, right? You know, and, it was yeah. crushed. So crushed, and they were yeah. up and coming. I and mean, they weren't yeah. even Fall Out Boy was up and coming at the time. Still, everybody, um, you know, we actually went on a co-headline tour with Fall Out Boy <laughs> around this similar time, where we headlined the West Coast and Fall Out Boy headlined the East Coast. And this is before anybody had, you know. Neither either band had really done anything. Obviously, Fall Out Boy ended up taking off with with their under Corpse record. Um, but we're like, we're going to use Aaron, and they're like, okay, well, if they're willing to do the record for eighty grand, I guess, and that's you know, they're that passionate about it, then we'll let we'll do it. And this then the record deal turned more into okay, we're going to do this record. It's going to be um, an up. It's going to go out on Red, which is an imprint of um, first. We'll do the Militia Group uh, EP. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do the record on red. So it'll be like Oh, a, that's right. It was like an upstream thing where you would go to a major and then they p- still put out your EP through Militia so that it felt more like organic. In, in, yeah. It yeah. wasn't the thing where you're on the Militia and then upstream is like literally designed to come from the top back down to Militia as an imprint or something. The idea was let's put the EP out proper and let's put it out on an indie to make it to give it a more of an organic path, you mm-hmm. know, to, and get more people interested in the band organically and that you use utilizing the militia groups. And at the time, militia group had done a pretty good job in that Southern California area for sure. We had to point out Chad Pearson, who was at tooth and nail previously, he's running militia group down yep. there now. And that did have noise ratchet who we were talking about Rufio yep. beautiful mistake. They would do all that, that, that type of thing. And, and he had and actually we, been our first booking agent too. So that was also the connection we had with Chad and the militia group because militia group was booking acceptance as our tour, as our, uh, as our uh, booking agent. And so it made a lot of sense. And we're like, okay, let's do that. So we put the EP out there and then the record was going to go out on red, which is an indie imprint of Columbia records. And we're going to do it on a lower budget. And so they approved Aaron as the producer. And then we made the record and instantly everybody at Columbia records thought it was going to be the biggest record they put out that next year. It became the number one priority <laughs> at Columbia records. So then, oh so then gosh. it went from being a red indie release to it's going to be a full on Columbia records release. Oh, by the way, different is going to be the first single. And we want you to re-record it with Howard Benson, 
who had just done The Reason and actually had just done My Chemical Romance as a side note. We want you to redo different with him. It's going to cost us about how much, Kalen? It was, like, it was like it was over 40 grand for one song. It's going to cost us about 40, 50 grand to redo that song with Howard. <laughs> he did the whole wreck of a sprinkle for 80, which is still a lot. And side note, we didn't use any of that song that Howard Benson recorded at all. We ended up staying with the original version that Aaron recorded at the concert, <laughs> which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then all of a sudden we're we're being told this is going to be the, the yeah the biggest this is the number one the only thing that Columbia Records cares about is acceptance in two thousand and six. Didn't didn't Matt play it for John Mayer and or yeah. something? He was like, "Yeah, this is good. This is a good song." So they, yeah, I mean, yeah. they basically had you picked as like, I mean, they were they they knew through their data, or their analytics, or their marketing, whatever they knew, they were looking for whatever was going to be the Fallout Boys. They knew those things were imminent. You know, I, I think, and they thought actually, you were I it. Think, I think they didn't think that actually. I think if they did think that, they would have done a lot better job. I think the the biggest song of the year prior was the reason by Hoobastank, and they mm-hmm. thought different was going to be a big crossover pop hit. I, I, I they didn't have any idea how to handle the band and where we came from. Had they the way probably Island Def Jam Universal was able to do with Fall Out Boy, you know. But Fall Out Boy, you got it's a whole different thing because really their fan base, they would have sold a million records without a major label, just like Panic did. Mm-hmm. So you can't even, it's really a different story altogether. But for us, Columbia wanted to treat us like a big time artist. And we weren't that, you know, they needed to commit, you know, C- Capitol Records had just put out the fray and the phrase, not a band like us, but it's a good, they, they had a song called Cable Car Over My Head. And it was a um, over. I can't remember the song, but it doesn't matter. It was a big hit. They 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 worked the song for six months because this band, Afraid from Colorado, they weren't a band yet. I mean, they'd been a band for a lot. They didn't have a lot of. They were just they were big in Denver, and that was it. And Capital had worked that record for six months. They worked Phantoms for thirty days, you know. And for it, when it didn't. You know, in, in some markets it did connect. We had a couple of markets where you know different was it was did really well. But the point is, is they just didn't. And maybe thirty days is the is not a right assessment. But the copy and we'll get there. But the copy protection lawsuit showed up. We got pulled off the shelves. Never got put back on the shelves. It just it just fell apart. What was that? And, what was that lawsuit? So uh, to combat pirating. Sony Music put a copy protected um, software on their CDs, which ended up having malware and ended up ruining computers and they got sued. They had to pull every CD, every Sony Music CD off the shelves around October or so. And and that was it for us. That was the, the, the that we're, we never went back. They never did anything after that. And the thing is, is. You know, I mean, the I think the biggest bummer of it, what I they wanted us to write an, a, a, another song. They wanted a first single. They didn't want different to be the first single, but we also didn't want to write it. We were like, well, you have a first single. It's take cover, or it's you know, I mean, start there, and we'll go from. We thought we had a good songs. We thought take cover was a really good option for a first single. Yeah, me too. And 
And ha- by the ha- by the way, had they used a song like that, or even a song like "So Contagious," or at least been able to get to- so "So Contagious" is the best song on the record, regardless of any of it, and it ended up being the most popular song on the record by far, not even close. And it was just interesting because, I mean, in hindsight, we should have just said yes and just been like, "Hey, let's go write with a really cool artist," and not we were just so focused on writing our music and being the writers and not have somebody else write our song, you know, that when they said, Hey, we need somebody to write a, you to write a single with somebody. We were like, no, we are, we write our own music. Nobody writes the music. We write it mm-hmm. in hindsight. I think it would have been nowadays. I would have been like, sweet. Yeah. Get me John Mayer. Let's hang out with him for a little bit. I mean, we can learn something, have a good experience. Like it was just, unfortunately, I know personally, I just took it the wrong way. In a, in a way that you regret at this point, Columbia records is telling you they want you to be the number one priority and you've chosen the game of doing what Bono does so that you have made a choice that's different from whatever the Seattle scene and time to fly was doing at, yeah. <laughs> what Gatsby's yeah. was doing was no longer the same thing as what you were going for. And do you think you should have gone even farther all in that way? Like that's more of the way you see it versus you, you could have had an alternative path and stayed more genuine indie all the way through if, if those were two past I think we should have I, I don't think we should have written with 10 people they all had like you know one letter names but i think we should have like we should have personally i wish i would have stopped and been like you know what there are really good artists out there that write songs let's let's connect with one of those and see if they can help us become better songwriters and yeah if we can write a really great song that feels like acceptance and is is real to us still like we, yeah, I think we should, I should, me personally, I can only speak for myself. I was very much against that idea. And I think mm-hmm. that was a bad, a bad decision. So did you have to, did you fight then with the label? I mean, are you fighting with Matt Penfield about what you ought to do with your career at that point? Well, Penfield was a, I don't, we, Penfield was a huge advocate for us. I mean, it wasn't like we had to, it, this was, this, this went above Matt. Um, so that I don't think that was an issue. I think, I think for us, it was just to piggyback kind of on what Jay was saying, at least in, in my mind too. Um, I think, you know, before the record came out and, and, you know, before the disappointments might've happened for the label, it was like, for us, we were being told that there was so much great stuff on the record to then be, have them come back to us and say, Hey, can we, can we start from scratch again? I think that for me was more of a confusing thing. Like, like what Jay was saying was like, well, you have take cover. You have so contagious. Let's roll with that. <laughs> and they didn't see it. They didn't think you had it though. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even, uh, you know, our manager at the time thought that was the right, we, everybody thought it was the wrong play to start with different for sure. Even if we were going to start with a, a, whatever you want to call it, a crossover type song, even so contagious was thought as, a more unique, memorable, uh, like unaccepted, like different's a good song, but in my mind, I don't even identify it as an acceptance song. I, I, I look at So Contagious and going, that's probably more like what we were really trying to accomplish, which is stylistically us, but, but unique still, whereas mm-hmm. different felt just a little, it was just, we were, you know, trying to, we, we got caught in between Coldplay acceptance and all kinds of stuff. Right. It could have been Coldplay so, Hoobastank and, and they had that on the mind to try to strike yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, once again, in hindsight, I think had they spent time on take cover and so contagious, 
they probably would it would have probably resonated with the with the people that ended up loving our record I, that Columbia sure. just didn't understand was out there. They had all, there were all these people that ended up loving Panic at the Disco or Fall Out Boy or whoever, Paramore or whoever. Those same people would have reacted to take cover and so contagious. Yes, I know. Yeah, totally. At a huge level, and it was just nobody. Oh. But but nobody, if especially with the amount of funding and, and and support that we would have had, nobody stood up and just said, "Hey, no, no, no. We this is what we need to do." Mm-hmm. Everybody second guessed it because I think at some point that our managers, I think everybody was so surprised and almost like. What is happening? Like not us, but I think from a management perspective, I think they were almost like, "How this? How's this band getting this deal? How's this band all of a sudden the number one priority at Columbia?" And they almost like didn't want to stop that train by being like, "Hey, we don't agree with you on this different right. thing. Let's yeah. do this," because they're like, "Donnie Einer wants to spend millions of dollars to make this band huge. This is a good song." let's not screw it all up. If this is the way we got to go, you know, and the band won't write another one. So let's go. And, mm-hmm. and had they done it a different way, I think it would have worked out actually. Well, I think that bears out for what happens next. So, um, you, you guys are still doing the punk tours and stuff like that and getting a lot of tours. You did some warp tour. You did some, I remember you did some warp tour at least. And I mean, didn't you do yeah, a tour with Academy well, is where panic at the disco was like the opener. And that they blew up during that tour. Was that is that right? Were you on that? We actually took Panic out on their very first tour ever. Yeah, it's like you were headlining. Um, yeah, correct. And then um, they were the opener, and they pulled off about I don't know two or three weeks into it to go on the Honda Civic tour with Fallout Boy, mm-hmm. and their replacement as the opener was Paramore. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, That's so good. So, but. That that tour with the Academy and Panic and what was it? Hello Goodbye was the other band. Um, that tour got when they when they started booking the bands for that. That was before Panic had blown up. So we actually we got billed as um, direct support to the Academy is. But honestly, by the time the tour rolled out, Panic probably should have headlined every night. Right. I mean, That's not, right. They I mean, blew up like in, instantly as they came on. That was probably what do you, what do you guys think? Like four months, four months later after, after that they were their opener on, on the take cover tour. Jay, I don't know. Yeah. I think it was probably, yeah, it was quick Four months. Yeah. It might've been, they, they did one tour. They did our tour. They did the Honda Civic tour. I think their next tour might've been that Academy is tour where they ended up co-headlining. Yeah. Yeah, so that that was so you guys music was resonating and it was working and like on that level you're down on that you know that came out of the organic approach and militia group and the bands you sounded like and the bands that you were like who you had outworked a lot of um, to be honest by that point you 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 saw success earlier and worked harder to get there faster that was basically that's basically the way I see it so you got that opportunity but then what happens here there's a there's, there's a real tension there and I actually don't know this part of the story so that is a question mark. This so all this was happening, and you're a little bit disconnected from this. You're having trouble there. There's all this pressure on this side until finally, what happened? I don't think that we really real. I I don't think that we felt like there was a lot of momentum. Like I think I think that 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 Academy is tour for us was like kind of that that. I mean that was actually the last tour we ever did. Honestly, we play. I think we played two shows after that maybe, and then we were done. But so for us. 
the label basically had was ready to move on um which i think was kind of defeating for us how did you know it was dead in the water at the major label which was a nightmare scenario that you were aware of or not even aware of before that that could happen well they were they were we were on our fourth a and r person because matt matt had, had now had been gone and mm-hmm. um we got to the point i we were making demos and we had written some demos that I thought we all liked a lot, like um, desperate and uh, not afraid. And, and we'd, we'd written some demos and the A&R guys at Columbia are like, yeah, we need these to sound more like the Foo Fighters, you know? And we're like, uh, you know, and it was just, they hadn't said they're going to drop us. They hadn't said anything. I mean, nothing had, we, when we broke up, we were still on Columbia records at the time. Um, but it was not, you know, going back to just that initial kind of, we are just idealistic, you know, so idealistic. And the reality is this felt so far from what I think any of us initially were hoping to accomplish that it was, it was frustrating. It was frustrating to have, you know, to not, yeah, to have the label doing this, you know, saying this about your stuff and you're thinking it's good and you're like, they, they screwed up the last record and you knew they screwed it up. I mean, we knew that they just, they screwed it up and they had no idea what was going on. And that was a bummer because we thought it was a good record. And, and then it felt like, I think Kalen's right. It felt like I, I, you know, we probably wanted it to happen faster than, we should have wanted it to happen too, though. I mean, and, and, and the same token, like bands kill to go on tour with Academy is and panic at the disco in front of, you know, 2000 people a night and have, and, 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 and we don't even know if that we didn't even, I don't even know how we judged if that was working or not. You that's know what, what that's so, we, so crazy is by the time you finally get to touring, which I, I feel like I remember the whole thing happening a little bit slowly once you got tangled up with the major label. But even by this point, you're out on these, what are, incredible tour opportunities and you're still feeling let down at the time when it's finally you're achieving something at a very high level that is actually resonating with fans like it is happening but yet your perception is is this even good well we had no way to know because you know they were they were ripping our record on limewire half the time and Mm -hmm. then you know the records aren't on the shelves and we don't you know my we just don't know how to navigate what work is was working you know, in, in hindsight, Aaron, you know, Aaron Sprinkle told us when we saw him in Nashville last time that he had connected with Columbia Records on a different project. And that nowadays, then now that they can go back and look at the metrics of LimeWire and Napster and see kind of what kind of sharing was happening, that they their best guess was that Phantoms would have done a million. It was like a, it was a million records, roughly. Mm-hmm. The equivalent of a million records based off the amount of, you know, it got leaked like six months earlier, something crazy like yeah. that. And based on the activity level, they can now go back and they have some way to gauge this, I guess. He's like, they're, they were telling me that they thought it was, had the, the they would equate it to a million record sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, well, 10 years later, I mean, however long. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's just, inter- I mean, you know, it's interesting because. At the time, we had sold 100,000 records, and we thought it was a complete failure. Yeah, you thought the 100,000 sold was, you saw it as a failure. Uh, I think so. 
Well, I think the lay, I, I, I think that was the vibe more from the label, which then we just kind of, you know, that's kind of the, in it, that kind of rubbed off on us. Like if we would have sold a hundred thousand records on teeth and nail, mm-hmm. we would have been the number one priority for the you, next record. Totally. You would have been the top band. Yeah. There. I mean, like, I don't like, I always felt that there was some tragedy in that, to be honest, you know, like, I don't know that you should have done it different or anything like that, but it's just, it's very clear that that record gained traction and and today when people look at it it's I, I guess it's spoken of as it has a cult following but it's a big ass cult following and i think christian <laughs> who's not here tonight because he had a baby would be the best person to really have gained that experience being in amberlin because i know for a fact that being on the road all of the years i've been on the road since you guys stopped it ne- you never acceptance never stops getting talked about and that's true. Like when I'm out on the road, we meet bands and we're talking about bands and stuff. Your name will always come up. And the bands that were touring us and opening for us were big fans of acceptance. And now they're, you know, in the scene and stuff. So it really was a, in a way, it was like there's this bands band thing that happened, but it was just people who were paying attention at that time. They got passed around. Um, and it, it's, it seems kind of tragic in, in a sense when I, I've always felt there's a tragedy to that. Yeah, I didn't realize until somewhere in 2014 13 and i went to las vegas to see my our all of our buddy but sean uh, sean mack and the, the the violinist for yellow card mm-hmm. and yellow card was doing a co-headline tour with all-time low and i didn't even know who all-time low was now all-time low is one of the big one of the bigger bands that people listen to period they're they're like a pop punk band and they're, they're big. I, mean, I don't know if they call themselves that now, but point is, is, and, and Hey Mercedes is the opening act of this. And Hey Mercedes is uh, Cassidy Pope who now, who ended up winning um, the, vo- uh, that's the not vo- Hey Mercedes. No, hey, not Monday. Hey, Mercedes. hey Monday. She ends up winning the voice. Right. Um, at the time though, she was, they were on Columbia records and, she, and, and they were the opening back. Anyway, long story short is my, my I'm there at the Mandalay Bay hotel room after the concert to see Sean and be like, Hey, what's going on? You know, cause we wanted to, to, to say hi to him and, and be in Vegas. That'd be cool. I hadn't gone to a concert. That'd be the only concerts I would ever go to. And he says to me, Hey, a couple of the guys from all time low and Hamer's uh, Hey Monday, were wondering if it'd be okay to talk to you. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what do you mean? They're like, acceptance is like one they're, favorite band or one of their favorite band or whatever and they're just like you know i know you don't care he's just laughing with me he's like they just want to make sure if they came and said hi that you wouldn't be mad about that i'm like i don't even know sure i mean i okay yeah i mean cool you know and yeah that was the first time that i was ever even like i don't know it was a weird moment for me personally because i was like how would the record impact these guys that are like 10 years young they're young way younger than me mm-hmm. and it's like oh this is a band now that might have listened that they might have been listening to us like the way they, we were listening they to. certainly were i mean all the bands in the lineage that follows were influenced by acceptance you know especially within the musical sphere there it just was highly regarded and passed around it connected on whatever level that that was in 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 that scene but i mean it's interesting 
because you missed it, most of it. You, you missed most of your good fan interactions that you could have had in your career. You didn't ever get to actually have them. And, and it, but it turns out your music seemed to be, it seems to really be impactful. It's still a thing that people are into and talk about and listen to and, and stuff like that. But what was the, the actual breakup? I mean, what was the circumstance of that you couldn't keep going? I, do, I don't know the answer. The, the the whole vibe, the vibe was just the vibe was whack at that point. I mean, Jay Jay is probably more. I mean, I I mean, I, one the, the, the actual like the bands breaking up is we were having a band practice and I said I'm quitting, uh-huh. and that's like the actual. That's what, and I think to Kalen's point, the vibe was not there, um, and but other than like Christian, who was like huh <laughs> you know like what do you mean we're 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 still on columbia Records. like he sounds yeah, like yeah. you right now man actually we're yeah. still on columbia records we just did an awesome tour you have like, sold a hundred thousand records everybody loves it i mean what, what are you talking about <laughs> he might, he might well, have been but, the but, only sane guy in the room i don't know yeah man. but but at that point that was fresh off of columbia telling us they didn't like any of our new demos and to keep writing and i think for us yeah. that was you know coming from you know all this excitement you know flying around playing for people like rick rubin and matt to we don't like anything you guys are doing. Send us something, you know, later. <laughs> yeah. It just, it just kind of killed it for, I, I think it was, it was definitely. Um, well, at that point it was contributed just, it, to, it, it, I didn't want to do it as a job. That wasn't, the, I mean, I wanted it to be my job, but I didn't want it to do it as a job. If that made sense. So mm-hmm. at that point, when it started becoming a job, it was, it didn't make sense. And it, and it also wasn't what we were ever about. I mean, it was just never, you know, I, and that's like you said, you know, Phantoms connected. It was because it was never about that. It was never, if it became about write the next Foo Fighters record, even if, I mean, it's one thing for us to be in a room and say, let's write a Foo Fighters song. It's another thing to be told to write a Foo Fighters song. <laughs> I don't, you know, it's like. Yeah, it's a like, big difference. A bit, very big is. difference. Yeah. You're one's right one's called inspiration. The other one's called terrible lives. I don't know what they say, but like. Yeah, I just know. I just remember personally being like, you know what? The moment this becomes a, a like a chore, yeah. I'm out. And you know, I was married at the time, and that was always that was a priority. And and it was and and I was the I mean, I was the worst dude to be in a band with. A side note, just another. I mean, another. It wasn't like we were all like bosom buddies. Like I mean, some of the guys were, but I mean, I didn't have. I was not an easy person to be in a band with because I had all these rules that you had to follow to be, you know, I had the outside of the stage rules and Kalen had the on the stage rules. So, you know, <laughs> band, yeah. Yeah. You yeah, had to follow it. a set of rules. Otherwise it, it was going to be bad for you. I Give mean, us some examples of those rules though. You or anybody else that, that would speak to them. Oh, that, well, you know. Christian could not. So when the concert was done, you aren't going out and drinking and staying out late. We're not staying at this city. We're going to the next city. We're going to bed. We're going to be ready to play tomorrow. Yeah. We're not going to get caught up in some, you know, hang weird hangout session yeah. at the time. Jason's course, on you know, vocal rest all the time. All that. I'm not. T- Jason, can you do merch? No, I can't because I can't talk to anybody. You know, and, and like all that, and then. Um, and, and, and probably and worse. I mean, that was like this, this. That's just the beginning. Like it could be if Ryan didn't agree with something of mine, I'm sure next thing it's like, you got to agree with me. Otherwise, it's not right. You know, I, I mean, who knows? <laughs> like, like it was so 
it came from a real passionate place, but it was so effed up, you know, I mean, like it, and then on stage, you had to be perfect. Otherwise, Kalen was going to, you were going to get the death stare on stage. Tell him, Kalen. This is true. This is no, true. I would, yeah, yeah. If, if, if I heard something, I would definitely, like, you know, Christian, you know, this is the king of love ups. So I'd, I'd stare <laughs> him down. I, I'd stare him down or something. And, you know, it, afterwards, I, you know, I, it, it'd be that conversation of, you know, dude, you totally kill the vibe when you, you know, who cares if I screwed up? I was doing something cool and, you know, whatever. And then you stared at me and, you know, you just made me feel self-conscious for the rest of the night. I mean, that's kind of where, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, I'd be like, after the show on stage in front of a thousand people, I'd be like, Kalen, that was sick, right? And he'd be like, huh? And, be, and you knew he's pissed. I'm like, what? I mean, Christian can't even play his guitar, you know I mean? Like, or like, whatever, right? <laughs> I mean, like, like, I mean, does Ryan even know what songs were played? Or like, whatever, whatever yeah. it would be. I had, I, you know what? I'm going to come out and say, I had the worst of it. So I stood next to Kalen on stage Right. So he heard everything. And then I probably disagreed with Jason the most as a whole. So I had it coming from every angle. And mm. at, at some point, right, like it was just, you know, you had two very, very similar people doing different jobs where it made it, you know, it was tough. Right. It was, like, it was. you know, you're kind of caught in a hard place. And, you know, I, I, I bowed out a little bit earlier than, um, than than the rest of the band but it was it was kind of tough you know to be in that spot where you know you're kind of dealing with two very very strict tough personality types i also think over reflection and 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 kind of given the trajectory of what we've done since then and kind of coming back together as as a group um that that makes a really cool story though right like to be able uh -huh. to connect with these guys and we have a whole different i remember man i remember my first show or not my but our first show back together playing gramercy theater and it was just i was so i was so nerve-wracked i was like man i'm gonna screw up like it's i i haven't done this in 10 years like kaylin's standing right there like he's gonna hear oh. something or like you know, I'm going to say something weird because I'm not the same person that I was way back when. And Jason's going to call that out. And like, just, just to have that come full circle and have everybody be in this spot where they're like, you know what? It doesn't matter. Like the thing that matters is what we're doing right now. And that's why we're all doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think as tough as, as tough as it was to be in that spot, um, at that time, I think it makes for a really cool story. Yeah. Oh no, this couldn't be more unexpected. And I can tell it, I've been moving in so slow. Don't let it throw you off too far. Cause I'll be running right behind you. People of the world, I hope you're enjoying this acceptance episode. And as if you couldn't get more acceptance in your life, they have a new record. 
If that is news to any of you, they put out a record a couple months ago called Wild Free, and it rules. It was so fun being a part of putting this thing out, and uh, it is just a great album. So I am here to tell you how you can listen to it and maybe acquire some vinyl if you would like. Uh, we put a link in the show notes for this episode. So wherever you're listening to this, if you look into the show notes, you should find a link. That'll take you to places where you can stream it or buy it. Uh, it'll also give you some links to vinyl, um, both at the band store and our store. And the vinyl turned out really great for this record. And if you didn't know, we put out some B-side seven inches on our store so if any of that sounds interesting or fun or christmas gifty to you uh love to have you click on that link and check it out as always be sure to follow their pages on any of the dsps whichever one you subscribe to uh and hope you dig it it's an awesome record it's very fascinating from my point of view uh to be able to experience these stories of people and see them just reflect on the experiences from a different point of view. And we, it seems like over and over that all these bands and cultures and even the label itself that have these really very strong, you know, micro cultures of to, to succeed. And it's everybody yeah. trying to do something for something bigger than themselves that you can feel beyond. And everybody's has very, very high expectations of one another and it's driven by passion. And it's these small teams or bands like under oath and they're able to get the amount, right amount of people focused the hardest on these certain things that they know exactly what it is that they want. And they're able to just really achieve a lot. And then, but sometimes those, the, they don't, you know, a lot of stuff goes wrong in, in, in those environments too. And then to talk to the same people that were going through all that stuff 10 years plus later, uh, people reuniting, it's just, it's just, it's just outrageously common that they can reflect on the unhealthy side of that and see what they were doing. And they're lo- yeah. very often different people who have, really learned similar things and you know some of the bands continued or got back together haven't got back together whatever but it's really cool to hear the people with it's just a one decade of wisdom i mean but it's really nice i mean everybody seems like they really when you start to see these bands getting back together and doing reunions that's that's cool and then when you see them actually have a good vibe and they're still good at music and then their vibe is right, like with each other. You can hear the forgiveness and stuff like that when it exudes in these bands. And you're not the only band like that, but I've spent some time around you guys. I spent a week with you on that one record last time. Right, yeah. And yeah. with Sprinkle. And the vibe that you guys had was like, these guys are so close and it's so, it felt, it feels good. And so to be able to recapture that and then on top of that, be able to make music and then have had your music be yeah. like, you know, vindicated in whatever sense it is. Um, it's just a really, it's really special and and I think valuable to see and hear that there's these lessons learned and all that stuff and that people. Well, there's can, there's something that superseded all the bullshit, right? Like yeah, when you talk yeah. about when you talk about you know a Kalen being upset about somebody missing a note or a Jason being upset about you know saying a thing or doing this or whatever. Like you look back at it after enough time. And you see that a lot of that was bullshit. Some of it makes a ton of sense. I think the overall yeah. core message of what's going on there is yeah. important, right? And it helps you shape how you want to go about your day to day. I couldn't tell you how important a Kalen being on my ass about missing a note mm-hmm. 
was going to be for the rest of my life. Right. Like I had no idea. It's like a 19, 20 year old kid being worried about that, how that was going to shape the next <laughs> 10 years of how I go about doing my day to day. Right. Like yeah. not in a band, I'm just saying whatever. But what you do realize is like, there's a certain level of and certain degree of bullshit, right. That comes with all that, all the padding, all that stuff. And when you break break it down, and just look at it as its whole, you realize like the root message is love, whether it's coming from a Jason or a Kalen or a Christian or a Garrett or whoever, the idea is that it's all love, right? And I think, I think that's one thing that we've been able to latch onto. And we've been really, really, really fortunate to kind of put at the forefront of this whole resurgence and like these records that we keep doing and, everything since kind of like getting back together after there was this period of blackout, right? Like not talking, not, not necessarily like continuing that relationship. I think we've all been really, really good about being able to cut through the bullshit and understand what was real about the whole thing and appreciate it and then build on that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's what I I love about these guys for sure. A hundred percent. I think that's a good point. I mean, I think we always, I, I think there was always a respect. I think there was always a general, I can't think of a time when anybody was out to hurt anybody by any means. I think you know, once yep. again, it was an atmosphere that could be frustrating because of the level of dictatorship when it came to the expectations of what we were going to accomplish yep. as a band. Yep. And I, I don't think that, and I think that when it came, you know, Ryan was young. Garrett was young. You know, Kaylin and I were older. You know, Christian was our age, but he was kind of young or free spirited, maybe would be the right word. And I think where the, wherever there was, you know, when there was friction, it was probably a lot about nothing was going to get in our way, period. It was, yeah. Nothing was going to get in our way and nothing was going to tarnish our, what we were about either. Like, this is such an important thing that we're doing. We have to take it that serious. Like for me personally, that was like, it was so serious what we were trying to do that we can't ever lose sight of that. It doesn't mean that we didn't, you know, I think love each other for, I think even now when we get back together, Ryan's point is right on. Like I, we get back together now for the joy. Like you said, Matt, when you were with us, we're looking forward to spending time and I'm looking forward to experiencing Ryan's personality and, and Garrett's yes. personality yes. and Kalen's personality, which were the similar they're they've changed, but Ryan was always, you know, a, a very witty, like good for the, a, a, the you know, a, a comment that would be like right off the cuff and get you being like, that was a good one. You know, it was, Garrett was always going to be good for kind of that fun, like, always going to be like the fun going, Hey guys, what's going on? You know, like just always being in a, in a, in a generally good mood and like agreeable with whatever's going and ready just, and for sure ready just to show up and be by far the best musician in the band, you know? And, mm-hmm. and he always brought that without, without question. And, and, and I think Christian at Christian's probably the one in my opinion that changed the most over time, because when, when we got back together, he was like setting stuff up, like getting things together. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like, he was usually the guy where like, okay, it's four in the afternoon. It's time to get up. Let's go. You know? And like, he was just kind of the free, I mean, he was the real free spirit from yeah, the perspective. Yeah. Of it. It's like just excited to be playing music. But like when it came to like work, 
you know, Kaylin and I, that was something that we took really seriously. And I think, you know, obviously we started the band together in, in high school and, um, you know, we've had that, a, a really unique relationship in a good, I mean, we've always had a, that we were probably the dominant personalities of the band. We, we didn't really, you know, we clashed, but we never really clashed. Like I hate that guy. I'm never talking to that guy or whatever. Like mm-hmm. we had, we knew each other. We knew our space. We knew where we, where we lived. I think there was, and, I, and that was good for the band at some level for sure. Um, and even now it's, it's even better probably because of the fact that everybody, if anything to Ryan's point, the respect and the things that we loved about each other now, they've only been amplified and the things that have been taken away is the pressure of, of the expectations. And now just all about live, you know, living life and, and, and trying to make something that you could listen to with your kids and listen to each, with each other in the, you know, mm-hmm. in the backyard one day. I think I think the difference is the expectations that we've had upon each other, right? Which if you're going to boil this whole thing down, any issue, any any like part of us where we struggled with another person or rubbed roads, it all comes down to an expectation that we have of the other four people that we have in the band, right? Right? Like I think what the biggest difference to me is that we've come to this point where we've grown to appreciate that relationship and that difference at times and that struggle at times. But like, it literally comes down to accepting, acknowledging and appreciating that relationship that you have from this, like, this perspective of I respect you so much that your opinion means so much to me, right? As a young musician early on or as an adult with kids now, right? Like we all deal with certain things like y'all had kids before I did, right? Like we, we've come to this place where we've really honed in on, I think some of the things that's, that hurt us in the end, like in the early on where we were so focused on, that respect and that mutual relationship between one and one that we, we didn't see the bigger site, right? Like we didn't be, see the bigger picture and we weren't focused a hundred percent on how valuable that is. Right. If you were to talk to me about 2020 acceptance versus 2005 acceptance, I would say it's all about like respecting the respect that we've always had, you know, since day one, we've always appreciated each other sometimes to our own detriment. Right. Mm-hmm. And we've always respected that way too much and that, not way too much, but to the point where it kind of sets us back in a lot of ways. Um, but I'm just, I can't, I mean, you guys know me, like I'll never miss an opportunity to tell you how appreciative I am of where we're at now. Right. And how much y'all have helped me grow as a person, musician and, 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 uh, as a person foremost, right? That's the most important thing to me as a dad, as a new dad, I look to you guys. And I think, you know, I wish I had, I wish I had had that perspective earlier on, right? Mm-hmm. Like it might've changed things for me personally in my relationship with the band and like my trajectory and my history. But I think we've kind of, for whatever reason, because time just does that, we figured it out. And I think this version of acceptance 
is my favorite version of acceptance, right? And I, I can't wait to see what else we got going. But, you know, here we are. Right on. Well, so you guys are a prototype of a lot of things. You're like, you know, in this transition time, you're one of the first bands out there and got into the major label thing. And you, you're you a casualty of a lot of circumstances with the downloading. And there's just so many things that you were the pioneers for in a big yeah. phase change. And, and it was never understood what was happening. And you got a, a lot of the pitfalls just happened to roll your way or things that could have. I mean, you know, it's just it's hard to not look at it. that things could have turned out much differently but in any case the the journey that's been has has been a it's a really neat one and the music that you guys are making are now and the shape that you're in is really exciting too so that's how the fairy tale ends you say and then you know from here on out what is the status of acceptance you know that you guys have new music out and i'm curious how what is the mission of it has it changed in your in your mind um I don't think so. I just, I think it's the same mission without any financial expectation, but uh, I think that's the only difference. I mean, I actually still think that, I mean, we, so we just put a record out this in October, this month that and it took us, you know, two years to make. And we started making it right after the last record and three years. And I think, you know, I really enjoy listening to this record. And I hope, you know, you know, when my son says stuff like, you know, Alexa, play acceptance, you know, that's a big deal to me. Um, and when people listen to the record and say, wow, you know, this is what I want. I didn't realize this is what I wanted out of acceptance. And here it is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I still think it's interesting because of our journey. I think we have a lot to say. And I think that could be said musically. Um, and, I, and I think it has an impact on on our world right now. And, you know, we look at Cold Air and like the video we did for Cold Air, which is, I think, turned out to be a really beautiful video and, and really spoke to what was going on right now. And I wrote that, you know, we wrote that song right after 2016 elections. And, you know, and, and, and I think our, our country felt very similar to how it feels now from a very you know from a, an interesting place of division and just and and i can i can understand that space because you know i'm have you know four five best friends that i went through a lot of different phases with personally you know you know whether it's be division of not just not being around each other and not talking or whether it be you know uh, leaving the band or being you know disenfranchised or whatever it might be we've lived some of these experiences inside of our band and they're happening on a, you know, in, in the world as well, everything from, you know, having Christians in the band to having, you know, atheists in the band to having, you know, all kinds of different types of scenarios. Uh, that's to me still something that I wanted to do back then that I still want to do now, which is impact a whole lot of people with a really positive message um, that changes the world. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. it's not a big ask. If you, I mean, if you ask me, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, the cold air that you mentioned it is a song that I really dig on there. I mean, t- tell me about those synths. Tell me about the production. I mean, it's it's different than acceptance in that it's got some of this electronic stuff in there. But my gosh, that those synths sound so good. I, I'm just curious about that track and its production. Well, Garrett, make I mean Garrett and Ryan both make that song. In my opinion, when you think about garrett's that's one of the most unique drum outside of the opening to permanent which is funny because it's just a drum fill but you know a, a, a snare you know fill mm-hmm. that's 
to me the most unique iconic drum writing that Garrett's ever done and and then and then Ryan you know to come in there and if you listen to the syncopation and what's happening bass wise it just to me they make that song musically for sure I mean the synth is beautiful and 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 you know that song started with like me right I just wrote on a I wrote a synth part not that part because <laughs> I can't write but I wrote it was just the two notes on you know I, an iPad he's playing the little iPad piano that's in the actual garage or whatever uh-huh. is a garage band garage you know, band, yeah. yeah you bring up the little <laughs> piano and I'm like then then <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that's that re- that song that time that we spent in that studio at blackbird really cool. set yeah it was cool but it also set the precedent of what was going to happen for the rest of you know wild and free right like it really did i mean there was there was a lot of just openness and organicness to it i thought you know, when we sat there back in the studio, it was it was more so than I had experienced in this band. And I've been through three of these records where it was literally like, you know, what do you think and what are we going to do? And like, let's just build this thing organically. I thought I was shocked after those two days, right? Like that we had spent hanging back in Nashville. And I had really believed that this was going to be something different. And this was going to be a very, very organic record. And it turned out to be way more than I expected, right? Like when we were finished with it and where we got to, I think everybody kind of had not only concessions, but it wasn't just about concessions. It was about, it was about, just this whole organic thing that we were doing. That was the, that was the entire point of it, right? Like the further down the road and you're like, you're talking about, you know, what do the lyrics mean? What are we trying to say? What, what's, what's the end point of this? And the whole thing was we need to tell our story, right? Like we have, we have so many different people here and we have so many different stories to tell. How do we do that in a cohesive manner, which, I had never seen before. Right. And I, I, I think, I mean, in the context of this band. And so for me, this was a pleasure, you know, even starting with cold air, because I think that set the tone for what we are going to do for the rest of every song that was going to be on yeah. wild free. For me, Cold Air is one of three songs that we've written that sound the way I pictured it in my head. I don't know how to explain yeah, it any other better totally. than that. But like, 
cold air is one of the first I mean so contagious is is probably from our from phantoms the only record on the fan on phantoms that I listen to and say that's the way it should sound and cold and and for me it's like I listen to it and it's like I'm not listening to me anymore I'm listening to interesting this, this song that I'm just really in into it sounds and, and complete the, and for cold air it was like once again the bass and the drums really are what take me there and then vocally or the, the way the melody comes together in the chorus and, and it just it's got this haunting kind of feel to it and it really just and it is it's like calling out it's really it's just like it all just works it's like the, the way the lyrics come across and how it sounds they, they marry each other and that song and wildfires on this record are the two songs on this record particular for me that the way i pictured them finishing out i listen to those two songs like i'm listening to just a band mm -hmm. like, like that's how that's how they designed it <laughs> yeah i'm like i'm like this is i really enjoy listening to this yeah. stuff you know and i'm not listening to it like oh did we should we have done something different there you know that that tells me that we're almost to the point where we we are we've made the the record that we really want to make like we're so close you know where where maybe all the songs are feeling like that you know potentially well or, i i really love when you're hearing people talk about music they're making and you can tell that it's you know and and slick shoes is the same way here it's they're making music and it's I can hear the type of excitement that they have in the music that they are reaching for or striving for now, not just trying to recreate it, or and certainly not to just do something for fun or just get paid. It's nothing like that. You can hear the excitement in the doing of it, the, the intrinsic part of what it feels like to make the sound that you could think to just barely able to get the sound that you could picture. Just to be yeah. on that discovery is yeah. the thing of it yeah. was yeah. the thing of value the whole time, you know. Back when in 2002, when you're just trying to figure out the gear, how to record or put a song together or get it to sound right, um, you know. And that's something you guys always have exemplified is that that real hard working edge of striving sonically. I mean, it was just always was apparent. I've tracked Jason on vocals on more than one occasion, and I'd say <laughs> you're, the, you're the pickiest singer I've ever tracked. <laughs> you know, you're, the, you're the, the person who has the most opinions about what he just put down on tape of anybody I've worked with. And it's that's exciting. It's always exciting to be around, you know, the pe people that that oh. just, you know, it's just it's mate. It's for you first. And you can feel that like you can yeah. hear yeah. No, the, that's the, true. the approach there. Had a had a conversation with Jackson from Slick Shoes. I wish I could just post the conversation that we had just because Matt, to your point, like when I listen to that record that they just got done doing, it's just like you—it's so transparent, right? Yeah, you like, can feel it. Yeah, what they're trying to do and how they did it, and it was a whole throwback, and and not even a throwback; it was a revival, right? Yeah, there you go. There you go. A hundred percent. And I met those dudes, so I'm really good friends with with Tom, well, all the MXPX guys, and they had played a show. Um, and Slick Shoes was on there uh, in in Seattle at the Showbox, right? And I got to meet Jeremiah and like all those dudes from Slick Shoes, and I was just so wowed, right? Just by like the level of just respect and just how like they knew who my band was, and that was 
I mean, that's going to get you a few points off the bat, right? Like, it was just so cool just to hear somebody like saying, I know who you are. And that's, I love what you guys are doing. And then kind of keeping up that connection and then listening to this new record. And it's like, yeah, you don't know how much your band meant to me when I was growing up in my conservative home. And I needed that thing, right. That was going to fuel me to be a musician going forward. Right. And you see these guys just crushing it and they made the record that I wish, you know, I, that's exactly what I needed. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought that <laughs> that's up. Good. Right. Like super cool. Awesome. We are the, we have two more records. I have two more records in me. Hopefully Kalen does and Ryan and Garrett do as well. Cause I usually, I have to get, I got to ramp Kalen up a little bit. I mean, it just takes a minute, but then he gets going and when he gets going, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, by the way. And then you can't but shut the, him up. The next one, we actually achieve what we've been searching for. Uh-huh. And Matt, funny enough, you say this about me being the pickiest singer, but I have this goal to write songs in which I can keep one entire take that, you know, I may, it might take me 10 takes, but I want the entire take to be kept mm-hmm. and to be that be to that be the song. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to now back then I was pushing for perfection in a different, in a, you know, vocal perfection. Now I'm looking for uh, the perfection of the moment. I don't know how yeah. to explain that, you know, the, 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 the feel like write something. If you can't sing it with the emotion and replicate it with the feel that you intended, don't write that, write something different. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to tell myself. And, and so to me, that's like what the next step is. And then the, finally, and, and this is why it's important for people that might listen to us on a podcast is then I want to actually write Phantoms part two and just get everybody that is interested in that let them have that moment of um to have the, whatever the phantoms record was going to be after phantoms that everybody keeps oh wanting yeah to hear that we can't seem That's, to figure out how to write but you're into uh, that i mean is that something we can t- we can have is that something we might get i mean that's very exciting nope. i think nope. record five i think record five should be a record that that honors our past awesome Oh, uh, that's that's awesome. As long as Ryan is gonna allow me no, to do it, no, Matt, no, no. Here we go. Matt, Here we Matt, go. How, We're back how, to that whole thing. I'm disagreeing with Jason. We already wrote Phantoms. Like, what? Do you, uh, man, I don't want to write it again. <laughs> I'd be interested to see what would happen if we if we actually went in to try and write what I guess would just be an, a very upbeat rock, fairly in your face record. Like, what mm-hmm. would that sound like? I'm not saying Phantoms. I'm just saying is. Our, that is some of our roots. Jimmy World, Bleed American, yeah. Clarity, uh, Color in the Shape. So, like, if we went back and like found ourselves in that space again, like you could do the it. Music we love. No, you can. We were kids. Yeah. What, what would we write? Like, well, I actually it, am, with your mindset now, you know, I think you can. I really believe that it would. Be, it, would be, it wouldn't be fake or anything. I bet you really would find it. I think we. I mean, it's just a matter of whether or not. I just if we felt it, if we, that's what if we felt like we want I, to me, I'm still not to the point where we've made the record that has achieved what I want us to, what I think we have in us, like what Ryan's talking about, what, what, what that pushes us to that next, that what, and there's never a final, but like where we do listen, we go, you know what, this is really what we've been going for in these last couple records to try and really find. I think we almost are here. Awesome. If that's we can make that record, I think we would make that record. Then we could, free ourselves up just to do a whole different thing it's like now okay now we've kind of gotten there you know what would be next well we're not going to go 
reinvent our sound again. I mean, again, I mean, like, you know, whatever we're going for right this moment is a path we're on. I, I don't know what we would recreate a whole new path. It would take too much time to realize that. And we don't have that kind of time. We got families and, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, it takes I seven myself, seven years, bro. <laughs> yeah, it would be seven years. I find myself romanticizing a little bit, you know, Bleed American and um, especially that record and feeling like, you know, I remember the best thing that Kalen's ever said to me. We were we were in um, Asbury Park playing this most our first show back ever at the uh, Bamboozle. And we're we're all walking. And Kalen's like, well, you're just, you're, you're a good, you're like, you're a good singer. I don't understand you. Like something came up and he's like, I'm a good singer or something. Kalen's telling me how I sing good. People think you're a good singer, whatever he said. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, but not like Jimmy, you know, not like Jim Atkins. Or he's like, I think you're better than Jim Atkins. Like he says this as we're walking. Totally. And I remember being like, wow, that was pretty cool. That was like a cool, that was like one of the best compliments I've had. Just my own buddy and car, guitar player telling mm-hmm. me. I think you sound better than that guy who, by the way, for me was like probably one of the top three or four musical idols that I had in my, you know, not my formative years, but definitely as I was, as we were finding Mm -hmm. ourselves in that middle space we've been talking about. So it's just pretty funny. That's, that's, that's awesome. So I stand, I stand by it, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) He said what he said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, this is a blast. I'm really looking forward to your future, and and it's just, uh, you're on tooth and nail now. So, isn't that nice? Yeah. Did we ever get to that? No, we didn't yeah, ever I get to that. I don't know what we, the, if, what we, there is to, to 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 connect there, but I mean, obviously, it's a good fit, a good home. I mean, which, it's definitely a full circle. I think it is more just the to your point, Matt, the fact that it is a full circle, an interesting way to get to this point in your lives and your careers. And I think it's, I think it's appointed. I think it's, I think it's perfect. I think it couldn't have been now that we, the way you, we think we, you know, when you, in hindsight, you go, wow, what a interesting way to end. Not that we're ending, but to be in this phase of our life together. Mm-hmm. How did it come about? Did you, uh, how did y'all get back to, hooked up? What was the circumstance of it though? Matt, we really don't, I don't even know if we know the answer to that. I think we threw, I, I just think we, uh, we, con- we, we, we touched base with Tyson and, we're like hey would you be interested in putting a record out i think we had kind of brought it up you know we've mm-hmm. been talking about it and we're like this could be a cool and they're, the music that they're doing right now is pretty cool yeah i mean on a side note i think that was a, another thing we were talking about which is they're they're kind of back to making music the way the way they were doing it at the beginning where it was music that they, that brandon just liked or you know, now maybe Tyson yeah. or whoever. and yeah. and that was what that's what was interesting that simple. Yeah. You listen to some of the artists, they're, they're just, they're good. They're, I mean, they're, it's just cool. It's cool. It's, it reminded me of when Starflyer was on there and it was just, some of this stuff was happening and you know, whatever that means, but I just felt that connection again. And that's, that was cool. And then they were, they were like, yeah, that'd be cool to, to do a record. Yeah. I think that is, is certainly what's happening. I think that tooth and nail at, at this time particularly has, is in really good shape and the roster is starting to feel like some, like a, it's it's just, it just feels pretty good. I think that's a common um, uh, viewpoint now, and as acceptance certainly belongs on the roster. It's got a, a variety to it and a spark to it. You know, I think there's a lot of good stuff going on from heavy music all the way to Copeland and this yeah. and you know new music and uh, there's a bunch going on. So that I do think it's a it's an exciting time. I'm glad so many people have the 
I don't know. I don't know what to say. Like the spark is back for a lot of people, not just me, but you know what I mean? I'm very excited yeah. about musically and have evolved in a, to the, a lot of the similar values, Jason, that you're saying about the way you look at takes and performance and recording. So I appreciate you guys uh, spending the time to tell some old stories and help me remember the scene from from what it was, where exactly where we came from, and have a, a full circle feeling here together. It's all pretty good vibes. Let's end with yeah. the song uh, "Wildfires," Jason, that you said uh, is came out so good. T- tell us about that song, and we'll end on it. Uh, well, "Wildfire." I mean, for me, that's my favorite song on the record. And you know, I talked about it earlier, just the, the way it kind of came out, and we were fortunate enough to get Jesse. Uh, we actually, you know, we recorded everything on the record and then the, the, the thought came up to that, that song, the, the narrative on that song and, and just the, the vibe of that song would just could be something really cool with, with a female vocalist. And um, so we connected with Jesse and she did such an, I mean, she did exactly what I, um, so she, her and Aaron had a group together called Luna wave, mm-hmm. uh, Aaron Sprinkle. And so that's how I, came about knowing her i don't know her i mean i actually never even met her in person face to face i just know her musically from aaron um and so that she came up i said hey you think jesse would sing on this record and um and he said i probably and she ended up absolutely singing it like once again the way you i would i had it it was beautiful and so Mm um I, i you know that that song just turns out feeling you know what's being said and, and, and how it's being said and how it's coming across musically um it feels sincere it feels right it it it's just also a really i really enjoy it it's a great listen yeah i don't know i love that song um so pr- probably my favorite acceptance song that we've written out of you know all three out of the three and a half records that we've done that's so. awesome well, we'll leave it there. I'll let you hear this song that Jason himself loves, produced by Aaron Sprinkle and featuring Jesse from Luna Wave on vocals. It's on the new album, Wild Free, out on Tooth & Nail Records in 2020. How amazing. Thank you, guys. You're the best. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Love you, guys. Production management, sound design, editing, and mixing by Reva Hansen. Our executive producer is Brandon Ebel. Special thanks to Adam Scatula, Jim Worthen, Tyson Paletti, and Marshall Fremeth at Tooth & Nail Records. This podcast is made possible by Jesse Batesel and Jesse's Music Club on Facebook. Jesse, you've been supporting a long time. Thank you so much for that. And also thanks to Downbeat Creative and the members of the labeled community on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a title sponsor like Jesse or Downbeat Creative for your band, brand, or nonprofit, find us on patreon.com forward slash labeled.
keep us together Will you help me 